Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Well, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. Hey, man, who's Carr? You know Wooderson? Oh. How's it going, man? Hey. Pretty good. How's it going with you? Say, so, hey, man, you got a joint? Uh, no, not on me, man. <laughs> It'd be a lot cooler if you did. (laughs) Back in September 1993, Richard Linklater wasn't a household name. Neither, for that matter, was Matthew McConaughey, Ben Affleck, or Parker Posey, which may explain why Dazed and Confused arrived in theaters and bombed. But time has been kind to Linklater's 70s set ensemble comedy, which, yes, happens to feature early performances from a ridiculous number of future stars. That 30th anniversary revisit of Dazed and the African Cinema Marathon concludes with 2017's I Am Not a Witch. That and more. It'd be too easy here to say, all right, all right, all right. Too easy. Ahead on Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting. Our five-film African Cinema Marathon comes to a close this week with Rungano Nioni's I Am Not a Witch. The film earned Nioni an Outstanding Debut Award at the UK's BAFTAs. Fair to say, Josh, if we hadn't been derelict in our duties back in 2017, might have been a candidate for our Golden Brick Award? I think it checks all the boxes, including being very, very good. Even more prestigious than a BAFTA, of course, the film spotting Golden Brick. I Am Not a Witch and our African Cinema Marathon Awards are coming later in the show. Before we get to that, a quick favor. If you've ever gotten any value out of this show, would you consider giving us a rating or a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts? Those ratings and reviews do help us reach new listeners. We want to thank Apple Podcast user Bryce 10 Barge. Bryce's subject line of the review, how about this, Adam? This podcast is like a machine that generates empathy. Sounds familiar. Feels like a reach to me. (laughs) Well, maybe a reach as well. Bryce says, I know I stole that quote. As these guys would be quick to point out, this quote is from Roger Ebert, who said, movies are like a machine that generates empathy. But I'm only half kidding when I say Adam and Josh and producer Sam also help generate a ton of empathy in the way they analyze movies and convey their thoughts every week. I admire their self-deprecating humor along with their sensitivity. When they struggle to grasp a foreign concept, they admit it, they hash it out, they argue. But they don't fight, scream, or insult each other. On air. <laughs> well, I was going to say, maybe maybe Bryce hasn't gone back in the archives quite far enough yet. <laughs> we were we were so much younger then. 
Bryce continues, they have thoughtful discourse and it never gets old. Speaking of old, I've had a great time going back in the archives. Oh, as a premium member. Okay. Although I've been listening for about 10 years, that still leaves about a thousand hours of content that I've never heard. If you've gotten to know these guys, hearing their origin story is well worth the price of membership. Finally, a quick shout out to my favorite guest hosts, Aisha Harris. Can she be a third permanent host? And the incomparable Michael Phillips. Two more reasons this podcast is the best movie podcast. Wow. Very kind, thoughtful words there from Bryce. And we're with you on Aisha and Michael being two of the reasons why this show is so much fun to do and hopefully so much fun to listen to. Of course, another way that you can support film spotting is by doing what Bryce did. Join the film spotting family. You can listen early and ad free. You get a weekly newsletter from producer Sam. Depending on your benefit tier, you can get that monthly bonus show or you can get complete access to the entire Film Spotting archive, filmspottingfamily.com. Speaking of bonus shows, we discussed the Film Spotting Pantheon in our most recent bonus show. Those titles that we revere and have set aside to not be eligible for top five lists, thinking about reworking that Pantheon and reconsidering some of those titles, including the subject of today's show, Dazed and Confused. It was the last day of school. Uh, Miss Crawford, I was thinking that maybe you and I can get together over the summer. I mean, it'll be legal. I mean, it, be... it was the first day of summer vacation. You guys know anything about a party here tonight? No, sir. It was a time they will never forget. There's a new fiesta in the making as we speak. I thought he was cute. Oh, this... You thought he was cute? Do you realize when he graduated, we were like three years old? If only they could remember it. Okay. So you're not going to go to law school? What do you want to do then? I want to dance. It's probably safe to assume, Adam, that people tend to connect most strongly to a high school movie set during the time they were in high school. For us, that would be late 1980s, early 1990s. Why then do I, member of the class of 92, think that the best high school movie of all time might be Richard Linklater's Dazed and Confused, set in 1976. I've shown my hand there as we are revisiting the film, not only because it's celebrating its 30th anniversary, but also as part of our Pantheon project. We're considering what to do with those films we've set aside as film-spotting classics, ineligible to be picked for top five lists for fear that we'd pick them too often. Dazed and Confused is in the Pantheon, though never reviewed on the show. And despite that status, I've included it in my top five Linklater scenes and my top five classic rock moments. See, this is why we're doing some housekeeping with the Pantheon. I believe you have a similar infraction or two, Adam. In fact, your love for Dazed, which follows a cross-section of eighth-grade graduates, high school bullies, athletes, stoners, and nerds on the last day of school, has been louder in general than mine over the years. When I saw Linklater's film in 1993, I liked it quite a bit and have thoroughly enjoyed it in bits and pieces over the years. But this was my first full revisit since then, a chance to consider where the film stands among all the other indelible high school movies I'd seen before and since. Movies like The Last Picture Show, American Graffiti, Cooley High, 
Fast Times at Ridgemont High, The Breakfast Club, Mean Girls, Lady Bird, and Booksmart. As I said, in my estimation, Dazed now stands near, if not at, the top. I'll get into my reasons, but let's hear from you first, Adam. I can't imagine the movie disappointed you. Pantheon worthy? I'm assuming you say yes. Link Letters best? One of the very best high school movies? The best? If the answer is yes on those questions as well, tell me, what exactly is it for you that elevates Dazed and Confused to a higher plane? First, I do think the answer is yes to all of those questions you quickly listed, except maybe, is this Linklater's best film? And that just proves how incredible Linklater's filmography is and how much I revere his films that I have in a top tier of my all-time films, but also just looking at his list of films, he's got four at least that are in a tier one and a few others that are competing with them. Dazed is one of those movies for sure. It's funny too, I'm clearly trying to stall on answering your question, Josh. It must be a tough one. <laughs> I realized thinking back on this and my first experience with Dazed and Confused, and I'll get to a question that ties to this for you a bit later. I didn't see this movie until maybe I was already out of high school. I knew who Matthew McConaughey was. I knew who Ben Affleck was when I watched this film. I knew who Richard Linklater was. I'd already definitely seen Before Sunrise and probably a few other of his films. And I wonder if there's something about Dazed and Confused where the more distance you get from it and the more distance you get from high school, the more you love it. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. The short answer to your question about what distinguishes it from those other movies is Richard Linklater, right? It's it's his sense of humor. It's his philosophical meanderings, his innate ability to write fascinating characters yearning for connection. But I do really like how you've set up this conversation because it gets me thinking about how those are all high school movies, yes, and they all have some overlapping concerns and characters, but it's interesting to consider the ones that are of their times versus the ones that are of a time gone by. Booksmart and Mean Girls, Fast Times, The Breakfast Club, those all take place in the eras they were made. Mm -hmm. And then you have The Last Picture Show, out in 71, looking back to 51. American Graffiti, out in 73, set in 62. Cooley High, 75, set in 64. Of course, Lady Bird, out in 2017, but takes place in the early 90s, or at least the early to mid-90s. And then you've got Dazed and Confused, released in 1993, but set back in 1976. And with that former group, you've got films that are honest about the struggles of teens, but that all strike me as ultimately pretty hopeful. They all are looking forward with some optimism. With the latter group, and I of course acknowledge here that there are some nuances and potential exceptions, you've got a set of films that are more wistful, that look back with some pensiveness and some dubiousness perhaps, and they mine that informed perspective for poignancy. I think Dazed sits nicely 
within that group of films, but also uniquely sits outside of them. There's no melodrama or any tragic element to days like you get with Cooley High and The Last Picture Show, or even American Graffiti, where we have a sense the entire movie of what's next for some of these characters. And the epilogue tells us one of them was killed in an accident, another went missing in action in Vietnam. That's what's next for them and for the country. Linklater is nostalgic, but he's clear-eyed about the period he's portraying. And appropriately for Linklater and his work, he's playing with time in an interesting way, too. It's not by accident that this movie is set in 76, the time of America's bicentennial. You see at the gas station some different flyers and things hanging on the windows that are American-themed and the mailboxes that they're hitting. Some have a Stars and Stripes theme to them. It's not by accident that the movie is set both post-Watergate which is never mentioned save for two of the nerdier characters in the movie getting called Woodward and Bernstein early on. And it's also set post-Vietnam, which is never mentioned. So what's the, what's the struggle? What's there, what's there to rage against? The football coach wants you to sign a pledge. We will come back to that one. Your parents are going to shut down the kegger, getting paddled by a bully like O'Banion, whether or not you're going to get those Aerosmith tickets. There's an aimlessness to the characters a lack of purpose that could seem superficial, but is also one of those things, especially the more distance we get from it, that's also what's completely endearing about these characters and this film. You have the Cynthia character, Marissa Rubisi, who shares her every other decade theory. She says the 50s were boring, the 60s rocked, and the 70s, oh my God, they obviously suck. <laughs> I, I don't think it's as simple as saying Linklater wants us to reappraise the 70s, that there wasn't some major suckitude going on for America or for these characters. That isn't the joke, that we know something about the 70s that Cynthia doesn't. She knows. Where we get the joke is, of course, the line that comes next when she says, come on, maybe the 80s will be radical. <laughs> Linklater lived through the 80s. We lived through the 80s. Here, her optimism is unfortunately naive. And as viewers we're presented with the conundrum of recognizing the truth in what she's saying while also having the benefit of knowing that whatever decade you come of age in, you will feel differently about it when you look back on it 20, 30, or 40 years later. When Randall Pink Floyd at the end says, all I'm saying is that if I ever start referring to these as the best years of my life, remind me to kill myself. Well, we're going to remind him because that is how he's going to look back on it. I love that breakdown of high school movies that are made during the era in which they're set and those that reflect back on it. I think that's a crucial distinction and Dazed obviously falls in that latter group looking back on it. I would add to the list of qualities that come with that, and you were getting at this in a different way, but jadedness, right? These are, mm -hmm. um, you know, the eyes of adult of an adult who is nostalgic in some ways. We've got the music. We've got the cars. We've got the stuff that brings, you know, warm and fuzzies for some people from the era. But, yeah, it's a jadedness not only of becoming an adult and realizing what has fallen away from that optimism you might have had as a teenager, but I think a particular jadedness to what you were getting at with this being set in 76. And that's what really launched this movie 
for me to the top of the high school film canon is realizing how distinctly that setting and that context has been interwoven into this film. It was something I'm sure I noticed the first time around. You've cited a couple examples. The movie, you know, doesn't hit you over the head with it, but it's there. You can't miss it, but it gained a deeper resonance for me and set it apart. I think you're right to point out that it's Linklater's distinct voice. You know, you look at some of those other movies that I rattled off, maybe Lady Bird is one that has a similarly personal tone from Greta Gerwig that you could compare to Linklater's, I don't know, maybe George Lucas's American Graffiti. It's often talked about as his most personal movie, right? Um, but yeah, Days and Confuse has the most specific personality to it that you can tie to the filmmaker. And here that's Linklater with the things you were mentioning, the philosophy, the philosophical characters, and and the humor. That's all here. So I think that's correct. But going back to 76... You know, I would extend it even further to capturing the 70s. And I really think this is a project that captures America. And what's interesting to me about that is if you think about high school movies as a genre, they're considering an essential American pastime, right? Not that school doesn't take place in perhaps somewhat similar structures outside of America, but these are particularly American pastimes and experiences that are depicted in these films. Here in Dazed and Confused, it's expanded to become a treatise on the American experiment as a whole. The more I thought about this movie and started tracing some of those, those things that you even mentioned, it is that mailbox that gets obliterated when they're out on their their tour of destruction through the neighborhood, right? Very pointedly that it's an American flag painted mailbox that we see in close-up get obliterated. There is such tension here about being an American kid. There's another camera move that I want to mention because, and I think we brought this up on the show in the context of other Linkletter films, he doesn't get credit enough for, you know, his visual elements um, and I think there is a camera pan here that is funny, but also related to this. Think of when Slater, played by Rory Cochran, is in the hallway at school talking about his plan to score some drugs. And after he walks away, the camera just pans slightly from where he was to give us a full shot of the mural on the hall, which is Abraham Lincoln, all dressed up in an American flag hat, but somebody's, somebody's defaced it, so his eyes are bloodshot, right? So already there, you see this, this questioning of the American myth, literally written on the walls of this high school. And I love the joke later. It's, it's Anthony Rapp's nerd who's just talking about the erotic dream he has and the woman inexplicably has Abraham Lincoln's yeah. head. You know, that it's a joke, but again, it's also getting something about how these kids being in the land of the free for them is is a blessing and a curse and i don't think all of them can quite explain how and the movie again to your point with the distance is able to do that for them these kids are not oppressed they're that's clearly stated by one of the characters right but what they are and what america was in the 70s boxed in these kids are boxed in by the ins insistence that they that is being all told all around them. And this is coming after the social tumult of the sixties, a time of great change and promise, right? No. What are they being told now? Sorry, kids. America is going to remain quote unquote. Great. Does that sound familiar? Hmm. What does that mean for these kids? For Randall, that means you are boxed in by the expectations for who you can be as the star quarterback and 
That's why he feels stalled. That's why America feels stalled. If you want to inflate it, inflate it. In the 70s, America feels stalled. That's why that paper he has to sign, that pledge, carries in this film such an existential weight. And I think you see it as a plot device. It's the one thing we're maybe wondering about. It pops up every once in a while. You know, characters, they keep handing it to him, right? He tries to get rid of it. And another character will say, oh, you dropped this or something like that. It's a plot device, but it's also this existential device, I feel, to remind us that this is representing where America was in the 70s. And we could argue has been stalled ever since, depending on how you define progress. The progress that some of these kids were hoping for has never really happened. There's been progress in some areas, but in some ways it can still feel stalled. And man, I didn't recognize any of that in 93, didn't recognize it over the years when I would mm-hmm. watch the funny scenes. I think this is why I I wouldn't say dismissed it, but why I would think of other Linklater films first. I would think, oh, Dazed is the funny one, right? Dazed is the one everybody quotes. It's got the great music. He has great music a lot, but you know what I mean? No, there is so much more going on here when you look at it from even more distance that I had then. Well, one of the great lines in the movie that is kind of a throwaway, but of course isn't when you watch it with the eyes that we were watching it with this time, you've got the teacher, one of the teachers early on, a female teacher saying, the 68 Democratic Convention was probably the most bitchin' time I've ever had in my life. Yeah. So it speaks to everything that we're touching on in terms of this romanticizing of the 60s and student protests and the sense of student purpose. And here she is. She was a college student, presumably, in 68. She's now, what, let's say maybe not even 30. She's already romanticizing that part of her past and this part of America She's affirming this myth. She's affirming her own myth about the righteousness of the generation that she comes from. And whether she really knows it or not or is doing it consciously, she's wielding that against these kids. And you said it. Myth is the right word because this image of what America is, that's that's what the movie's really about. It's, of course, how we think back on high school, and I'm not sure we're supposed to come away from this film thinking this is what high school was quote-unquote really like. It's it's an image of it. It's a memory of it the same way we all construct this image of what America is. It's not what it really is. And these characters, these kids, and their aimlessness seems to be a slap in the face to all these people who are dead set on continuing that myth. They're, they're threatening to mess up the system. Right. The system, the system of privilege, relative privilege that they've established. And yeah, I think, you know, actually, I think you could extend that to say that maybe this movie is suggesting that living in the United States is something like being stuck in high school because it does this link letters. High school does present something of a myth in the sense that it's always seemed a little odd that it's this unlikely melding of clicks. And even races, right? Think of Jason O. Smith, who plays another one of the football bullies. The fact that he's black never goes, you know, that just doesn't go mentioned. No one comments on that. So in a way, the movie's offering this melting pot dream, right? An idealistic vision of, of what America could be. But then you get that other speech from the teacher about reminding them, right, what's 
what they're doing during this summer of the bicentennial. She says some. It, it's the line about don't forget it's a. This is really about a bunch of slave owning aristocratic white men, mm-hmm. right? Who who didn't want to pay their taxes, and so you have this this dichotomy here where the movie is in some ways this strange high school representing the dream that America maybe could be, or at least likes to present itself as being, but then puncturing that dream always underneath. Yeah. Yeah. And to go back to the signing of the paper, what a compelling framework that provides for this film, because it is all about say it with me, kids stakes. It all unfolds over about 24 hours. And that is the thing that we get to have maybe a little bit of sense of drama or suspense about. Not that I think he's using it in a conventional way, but you're right, Josh, that it becomes the fundamental point when it comes to this question of identity and who you're going to be and what you're going to stand for and what you're not going to stand for. A song for me that doesn't come up in this film, isn't played in this film, but would have fit perfectly other than the fact that the timing wouldn't work out is the Cheap Turk song, Surrender, which is one of my all-time favorite rock songs, period. Came out in 76, so probably wouldn't have fit for a movie set in 76, but it really also didn't become famous until like 1978, 79, when their Live at Budokan album came out. But the chorus, the the chorus everyone who's ever heard this song knows from Surrender is, Mommy's all right, Daddy's all right, they just seem a little weird. Surrender, surrender but don't give yourself away. And there's a part in the movie that really made me think about that. It's when one of the eighth grade rising freshman boys, if you will, says to another one, they're going to get you anyway. I think you could apply Mm -hmm. that line to so many moments in this film. A lot of people who have resigned themselves to they, whoever they are, are going to get you anyway. You cannot escape it. And I think the movie even says on some level, there are going to be certain things you can't fight against. There is going to be a futility to fighting back against the system. You can't really win. They're going to get you. But here's what you can do. It's the it's the little rebellions. You you don't give yourself away. You do not completely compromise yourself. And that is what Pink ultimately does. And that last line, that big moment for a movie that otherwise has Nothing in terms of a triumphant speech or a really dramatic storytelling moment for him to look at that football coach and say, I might play football, but I'm going to do it on my terms actually really carries some weight with it because it is this, this confirmation and this refusal to give himself away. How good is Jason London? By the way, he's good. I mean, he's really we, good. It, it's like been lost in, in the cloud of reverence for McConaughey, which is deserving. Iconic performance may go down as his, you know, certainly most memorable, if not best McConaughey's, um, but as Wooderson. But man, I was also just taken aback at how important Jason London's character is and how he carries that without dominating any of the scenes he's in or feeling the need to become the center of the movie. You don't feel that, you know, I feel like in an ensemble like this, it must be tempting to make your scenes really count, right? To make them 
the biggest and the best. You could argue maybe that's what McConaughey is doing here. And in a way, it isn't his best performance. He's just throttling the heck out of every line he gets. London isn't doing that. He's not. You could make Pink the main character. It's not. It's Mitch, right? It's Wiley Wiggins' Mitch, I think, if we had to name a main character. And so London could look at that and be like, no, this should be about me. This should be about my character. But he doesn't. He just settles into this part of this deeply conflicted kid with a soulfulness that, um, you know, is not usually associated with the movie Jock. Um, I love the detail of how he wears the the beads around the neck, which are kind of, you know, a 70s era flower child touch, even though he's clearly also the athlete. He's kind of bridging the clicks yeah. there in that way. And the I, whole film, he's literally yeah. straddling those two worlds going from car to car. Exactly. And so I think London is London is just great. You know who, and this is just fresh in my mind, he reminded me of actually is Tom Cruise's Joel Goodson in Risky Business. I, I didn't include that among those great high school movies I mentioned earlier. I don't think that it's quite at that level, but having just seen it recently, you know, this is the same interior struggle that Joel is having is, am I just going to follow the steps to become my parents? And again, as I've been saying, I don't think this is just a matter of, I don't want to get old and get lame. This is like a larger Mm-hmm. Na- national question for, for me. It's like, are we capable of change or are we not capable of change? Heck, let's go back to McConaughey. It even connects to Wooderson, right? His most famous line about the girls staying the same age. Mm-hmm. It's creepy and funny, but it's also tied into this idea of he doesn't, he's stalled. He likes being stalled. Again, this is a stalled country that we are in. And in some ways it feels more stalled in the last couple of years than it ever has been. And Wooderson, even though he's funny, he echoes that too. But I, I don't know, maybe we've been talking too much about how how heavy this movie is. Maybe we should continue going down the Wooderson track and just talk about what's what's fun about it. Because it, it is such fun. It's such a great yeah. hangout movie too. I was going to go there, Josh, because even though I'm on board with all of this political commentary talk, I don't think or it's it's not my sense that link later necessarily i don't care wants us to walk out of the, i know you don't i don't care what I'm he gonna, what I'm, he wants this I'm movie gonna, to be I'm about i'm going to get at <laughs> i'm going to get at what i took away from it pardon me for not phrasing that as well as i could have josh <laughs> what i what i think the filmmaker at least succeeded in evoking in me is a sense that chuck Klosterman, who's been on this show once articulated better than I certainly can, or anybody I know. He wrote about this movie for the Criterion Collection in 2006, and he said that Dazed and Confused is not a movie about how things were. Dazed and Confused is a movie about how things are remembered. This film doesn't illustrate what it was actually like to be in semi-rural Texas in 1976, but I'm sure it evokes how that time and place must retrospectively feel to anyone who was actually there. And then he says, When I recall my most insane high school experiences, it's difficult to untangle what truly happened, what seems retrospectively plausible, and what I pretend to remember in my mind. No film has ever combined those three realities as adroitly as Dazed and Confused. That was how I was feeling watching this movie, where I'm thinking back on and reliving almost nights that I've had in my life, just like the ones these characters have had, Though I'm growing up in Iowa in the late 80s and early 90s, like you said, and not Texas in the 70s, there's nothing really about these characters' reality that matches mine or much of the specifics or the details. But not only does it match my sense of the 
the best nights, some of the best nights that I look back on the most fondly, it's not just the feeling, but it's actually the feeling you get when you're retelling those stories. Somehow what you're conjuring as you're telling them and you're embellishing them without even maybe being conscious of it, you're embellishing them in the moment. The movie, the movie somehow has that magical sensibility to it where it, it, it feels as if it's unfolding like an actual memory, not, not meant to give us what, again, what high school was really like. There's certainly nothing about this that's capturing any kind of fly-on-the-wall feel. It's, it's as if it's coming right out of Linklater's consciousness somehow. And I don't, I don't really know, even after watching it as many times as I have, I don't completely know how we pulled it off. It's a movie that, that defies some of my conventional approaches to thinking about films and structure and theme it just it just unfolds so effortlessly and yet as we've said isn't really effortless it's very intentional in terms of some of these points about america it's very intentional when it comes to the structure of pink's arc and it's very intentional as well even in a touch I love that I never really tapped into as much as I did this time before, which is that symmetry of having Pink taking on a protege in Mitch, and then you've got Mitch's sister, Jody, played by Michelle Burke, who takes on a protege in that young freshman girl. And this idea that they, they see in those characters, perhaps, something of themselves. They see an opportunity to actually be a guide for them and help usher them along this journey with some some kindness and some empathy as opposed to it being just the harrowing experience that uh, all their friends seem to want it to be. Yeah, that's that's the sweet side of the tradition, right? Is I think Pink even says something about that like that he some senior guys took him along after he got his paddling. Um and so yeah, as we're talking about following in these footsteps as being this curse, there is this sweet side that we see in the dynamic you're talking about. You know, the the other thought I had um, in terms of the violence of that paddling, which is brutal, like absolutely brutal. And this is the sort of thing, there's been a lot of commentary about Bottoms, the Rachel Sennett movie, Emma Seligman movie, being so extreme and exaggerated in its violence, right? And and how that's been a turnoff for some people. And I, I just felt like watching it in Bottoms, like they're trying to get at how violence of some sort is a core element for many students in the high school experience. Sure, they exaggerate it and play it somewhat for laughs, but it's for dark laughs in Bottoms. It's like this happens and it's kind of so terrible all we can do is joke about it and here i'm watching it in dazed and confused set decades earlier right different in the way you described it's looking back on it whereas bottoms is you know set in the current time but also recognizing that violence is an accepted and encouraged aspect of the traditions in this town at these schools. And so that was very jarring for me as well. You know, it, it, it hit me in a different way than maybe in 93, where I thought it was, it was kind of funny to watch these kids have to go through this and, oh man, does Affleck lean into 
the brutality of that. I had forgotten of how despicable of a character he played. Were there were there any performances among the ensemble that surprised you in a different way on on this viewing? Well, let me put it back to you like this. You kind of ruined the thought experiment that I was going to ask you to indulge me in, Josh, but I'll I'll do a version of it now, I suppose. And that thought experiment was to pretend which of course it's impossible to do, but pretend you're seeing this movie for the first time in 1993. And I come from the future and I tell you that in 25 to 30 years, one member of this ensemble is going to have an Oscar and be lauded Hmm. as one of the greatest actors of his or her generation. Who would you pick? Great question. Who would you pick? It would not be Affleck. Even though he's great in this film, I'm sorry. He's oh, fantastic! No, that, I mean it's a very effective character, but it's not one with you know what the experts would call range. <laughs> so I think he, I think he plays the the role perfectly. <sighs> I mean, you know, do you say McConaughey just because it's the showiest part, and that's where the Oscars go? I think you're asking a different question, though. You, you're asking who would be the yeah. most revered, right? That's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, can I say Linklater? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, you can't. You're looking and for an actor. I'm going to say that there is only one right answer, and the right answer is McConaughey. And it's because I think you're actually, I think you're undervaluing how really wonderfully funny he is here. He's hysterical. How, how, how truly a star-making turn this really is. And I, I think that if, if you were talking to someone or you were that person being posed with this question back in 1993, if you didn't say McConaughey, the only reason would be because he's so fun and convincing as Wooderson. Right. That you would never believe that this guy who's so good at playing a non-aspirational loser would be capable of such ambition and success. Either way, it's a testament to how good this performance is by Matthew McConaughey. There is not a line or single reaction that isn't pure gold in this film. All right, all right, all right. Oh, Christ. How you doing? Pretty good. Cool. You heard about the party being busted, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Not to worry. There's a new fiesta in the making as we speak. It's out at the Moon Tower. Full kegs. Everybody's gonna be there. You ought to go. Okay. Okay, we'll be there. Okay. Say so you need a ride? Uh, no, I got my own car. Thanks. Yeah, well, listen, you ought to ditch the two geeks in the car with now and get in with us, but that's all right. We'll worry about that later. I will see you there. All right? Bye. I love those redheads, man. I know you. <laughs> he's great, and he's, you know, as I've described it as flashy and showy it is, but only because it's so deeply embedded in a character who is flashy and showy, right? Mm-hmm. Who's going to pull up in the car that way? Who's going to say those things? Who's going to have that dynamic with everyone he meets? So, yeah, I'm not underselling it. I'm not underselling it at all. It's just that I was surprised in the context of going back to Jason London 
we have almost so revered McConaughey here that we've tended to overlook some of the other great performances going on in the film. Dazed and Confused is currently streaming on Peacock and VOD. If you see it and agree or disagree with our takes, we'd love to hear from you. Feedback at filmspotting.net. Oh, so Pantheon. It's uh, This is an easier one. It's in. No discussions. It stays. We still have way too many logistical oh, details gosh. of the Pantheon to work out, Josh. But <laughs> if you're asking me whether or not it belongs. Does it get your it vote? Does. does it get your vote? Yeah, there's a reason. There's a reason why it's in there in the first place. Okay. Well, just I'm trying to make things official. We've, you know, the paperwork has been sloppy lately. I'm going to, I'm going to drag this out for as long yes as Yes vote from you. Yes vote for me. Sheesh. Does, doesn't have to be this hard. <laughs> There are few voices, Josh, I enjoy listening to more in all of rock and roll than that one. Levon Helm from the band, I'd maybe say he's my number one favorite rock voice, except he's competing with two other guys in his own band. That version of The Night They Drove Old Dixie Down is from Martin Scorsese's The Last Waltz, which documented the Thanksgiving Day 1976 farewell concert of the band, a version that I'm guessing, Josh, you've never knowingly heard because you've never seen the last waltz not only that i'm i'm gonna really disappoint you here i don't know if i had heard that if i could have identified the song the title mm. of the song so this is going to be you, this is going to be an experience for me adam a lot of learning for me when we check out the last waltz i guarantee you xrt played the night they drove old dixie down on occasion maybe you that's probably did that's probably true yeah i think that's fair to say We'll continue our largely unplanned Sacred Calathon next week with a fresh look at Scorsese's The Last Waltz, which turns 45 this year. The concert, yes, was in 76. The film came out in 78. We have been contemplating a Last Waltz watch for a while. Very sadly, the band guitar player and principal songwriter Robbie Robertson passed away just a few weeks ago. He was a longtime music supervisor slash consultant for Scorsese, going back to The King of Comedy in 82. He composed the score for Scorsese's upcoming Killers of the Flower Moon, and his death prompted a lot of Last Waltz love. So we were already thinking about it. We were thinking about knocking out some Scorsese blind spots with an Uber review that we've put on ice that was anticipating the release of Killers of the Flower Moon, we thought now is as good a time as any, especially we're talking about 1976 on this show. Let's just keep it going. It's a blind spot for you. We'll do the blind cow. We'll remedy that. And oh, as if we needed any more connections, stop making sense. Playing at TIFF this week, being re-released by A24 in theaters, the Jonathan Demi concert doc showcasing talking heads. So all of that has inspired us to go ahead and not only talk about the last waltz next week, but we're going to share our top five concert documentaries, a top five we've never done. You would have thought we'd gotten to this one, but yeah, this is, this is just snowballed into what should be a very fun music themed show. And I should clarify, we did widen out a little bit. We're not going to make it just concert docs eligible. We're going to make it music documentaries and it is 
kind of incredible. We've never done that in all the years of doing this show. If you have thoughts on The Last Waltz you want to share or a music doc you want to make sure we don't overlook, email us. We may just feature it on next week's show. The email, feedback at filmspotting.net. This week on our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show, they've got a new pairing for us. Pablo Lorraine's El Conde with Pablo Lorraine's 2012 Breakout, No, with Gael Garcia Bernal. Both of those films are considering the end of Chilean dictator Augusto Pinochet's reign. So, rare instance of comparing two films from the same filmmaker. Mm-hmm. I'm sure they'll do a great job with that. Your Next Picture Show hosts are Tasha Robinson, Keith Phipps, Scott Tobias, and Genevieve Kosky. New episodes of The Next Picture Show post every Tuesday wherever you get your podcasts. And you can get more information at nextpictureshow.net. All right, I have an admittedly insane idea, but if I don't ask you this, it's just, uh, you know, it's going to haunt me the rest of my life. What? Um, I want to keep talking to you, you know? I have no idea what your situation is, but, uh, but I feel like we have some kind of, uh, connection, right? Yeah, me too. Yeah, right, well, great. So listen, here's the deal. This is what we should do. You should get off the train with me here in Vienna and come check out the town. What? Come on, it'll be fun. A clip from one of the few films... I rate slightly higher in Linklater's filmography than Dazed and Confused. That, of course, is Ethan Hawke from Before Sunrise. It's time for some poll results. A couple weeks back, we asked you, implored you, actually, to save a Linklater and just one Linklater. The options we gave you were Before Sunrise, Before Sunset, Boyhood, Dazed and Confused, School of Rock, no comment, or other. Josh, how did it come out? I said no comment. Don't shake your head. Mm-hmm. Other in last place with 5%. School of Rock, which Adam, like a bully, likes to take a paddle to. 10% of the vote. A lot of bullies in your crowd, Adam. You got a lot of bullies riding around in the back of the truck with paddles, don't you? Boyhood, 15%. Before Sunset, 17%. It did come down to a battle between Before Sunrise and Dazed and Confused. Dazed takes it. Wow. With 29% of the vote, that means Before Sunrise had 25% of the vote. And I got to say, I'm like you, Adam. I think I still have to stick with Before Sunrise as Linklater's best. But after this dazed revisit, um, I'm not going to argue too hard against the folks who voted for it as number one. I'm not mad. I'm definitely not mad about it. And I'm not mad about all the great feedback we got on this poll question, apologies if we weren't able to fit your comment in. We heard from Patrick Banks. I saw Dazed and Confused on the Saturday of the weekend. It opened in 93. I saw it at a matinee screening with a group of lifelong friends. Then we went back to my townhouse and watched Siskel and Niebert. Research informs me that they reviewed Fearless and The Nightmare Before Christmas. And finally, I put on a tux, drove to the church, and got married. That said, I picked Boyhood. While Dazed and Confused will always have a sentimental place in my heart, the sheer tenacity that Linklater had to direct this epic story of a family as they grow up is stunning. And the fact that he made it in virtual secret for more than a decade just blows me away. It's a masterclass in writing, editing, and performance. How could anyone discard this achievement? I love this movie. And in case you are curious, I'm still married to the woman who let me go to the new movie from that guy who made Slacker on our wedding day. (laughs) That is something, Patrick. Here's John from L.A. Typically, what tips me over into thinking a film to be a great work of art is when it manages to accomplish so many different things at once. 
the deceptively insightful Dazed and Confused is one of these films. On the surface, it's a teen hangout comedy, but it also exhibits a variety of deeper ideas, such as Linklater's preoccupation with time, as in this movie captures all of time. It looks to the past, being set in the 70s but made in the 90s. It captures the present, taking place in one day. You feel in the moment with the characters as if you're truly spending the entire evening with them, as opposed to the hour and 43-minute runtime. And the movie consistently looks ahead to the future, pink considering the pledge for the next football season, the frequent mentioning of securing Aerosmith tickets the following day. For being a movie so profoundly encompassing, it gets my vote as Linkletter's best. Then again, man, these may just be my rambling thoughts I had after toking a big, fat bull, man. Two mans there. I hope John's okay. (laughs) Julia W. I have been lucky to watch Linklater's films at the ages they were meant for. School of Rock as a child, Dazed and Confused in high school, and Before Sunrise as a 20-something-year-old. Nothing beats Before Sunrise for me because I watched it after a late night of drinking at 2 a.m. when everyone else was asleep. I felt as if I was right there with both Hawk and Delpy staying up late at night having a life-changing event. Obviously cliche, but this is the only Linklater film I will never watch with someone and will keep hidden in my heart as a small secret between the three of us wow lovely julia lovely how lovely is that and it makes me want to do a top five which is the top five movies i will never watch with someone and will keep hidden in my heart (laughs) as a small secret between the three of us probably our longest title but it'd be a great list we also heard from kendall beachy you might be thinking how can i pick sunset if it means sunrise is lost But as someone whose first link later was watching Sunset when I was in high school, the sequel stands on its own. Interesting. As I've gotten older, it has only gotten deeper. Revisiting it when I was the age of Jesse and Celine just reinforced my opinion that Sunset is essential link later. Here's another vote for Boyhood from Jerry. For me, it's easily Boyhood. This film is not primarily about a boy, but rather about experiencing the passing of time and more specifically adults caring for a child they love experiencing the passage of time. I watched this film three times in the theater when it was released. The second time through, I teared up at the very first image, a boy, age six, looking up at the sky. I teared up knowing what was going to happen to that boy. He was going to grow into an adult before our eyes. If you have a child or simply have loved a child that was in your life, you will understand that time passing is wondrous, mystifying, and most of all, heartbreaking. This is what Linklater captured in Boyhood and why it is in my personal top 10 films of all time. It's insane to me that Boyhood is my number four favorite Linklater film. But that's how ridiculously good Richard Linklater is. Addison Alley writes, Did I forget Linklater directed School of Rock? Yes. Do I have any choice but to save it? No. No, I don't. Sorry, Before Sunrise. Addison, you do. Just like Pink, you can crumple that paper up and you can just throw it in the ground. You can just throw it away. You don't have to sign it. You don't have to click the button for School of Rock. No one's making you. There's no football coach hounding you. Wow. That's that's just, can I just call you Benny? Benny O'Donnell? That, sure. He was, he was the redhead, right? All right. We heard from Jason Carey as well. Slacker. Why? It's not his best, but it changed cinema. And upon a recent rewatching is so fantastic and fun. Is the film craft great? No, but I love its shagginess. I'm a fan of its shagginess too. Jason Jeff Clark says, I'm not sure that I want to live in a world without Bernie, as long as he is under some kind of law enforcement supervision to prevent homicidal recidivism. An incredibly sweet film aside from the murder. (laughs) So we're getting to some of the the long shot choices here. Although one more comment, this comes from Jeremy Larry. 
though Before Sunset is the right choice here and is criminally getting beaten by the first and by Dazed and Confused for shame film spotting listeners, I am here to bemoan the inclusion of two Before movies and School of Rock before everybody wants some. Everybody Wants Some is perhaps the most Linklaterian film he's ever made, complete with era-honoring music, costumes, and production design, pure and undistilled stoner intellectualism, and an absolute marvel of a setting and character-driven story structure, with the latter a more honed and evocative version of Dazed's own. Again, I prefer the before trilogy and Dazed, but let's not break bones. Everybody Wants More of Everybody Wants Some. I am here for Jeremy's Everybody Wants Some love. I'm certainly here for it ahead of Bernie and even Slacker. I'm glad All right. I thought you got were, some attention. I thought you were going for School of Rock again. <laughs> no, I've, I, I've beaten that horse enough, Josh. Thanks to everyone who voted and wrote a comment. Linklater is not done yet. He likes to make films and just kind of fly under the radar, Josh, and then you find out they're coming out soon mm-hmm. or they're playing near us. Some of you have been perhaps following dispatches from Venice and Toronto His latest film has played to some pretty great responses so far. He's got a new one called Hitman. It stars Glenn Powell as a cop working undercover as an in-demand hitman. Our friend Brian Tallarico from RogerEbert.com caught up with it in Toronto and said, so that's what star power looks like. Really dig this movie's vibe, which doesn't feel like it's often a thing anymore. Reminded me of Out of Sight. Wow. Later and Out of Sight. Okay. Glenn Powell from Everybody Wants Some, right? I think that's one of the first times I saw him. Yeah. His breakout. There is no release date set for Hitman. As of now, we will have to keep an eye on that, Josh. All right, let's get to a new poll. This one might be even harder than the link ladder poll for Adam. Anyway, yeah. Sam is asking us to choose a John Carney film and just one John Carney film. His latest Flora and Son comes to Apple TV Plus at the end of this month. And I think you had a question, a fall movie question about yeah. this, Adam. Much anticipated one of my most anticipated. by you. So we're going to have to choose between 2007's Once. I'm assuming it was on your top 10 list that year, Adam. Do you remember where? It was. I do. I do. It was number seven, which is kind of nuts, but it was 2007, and I had There Will Be Blood at number six. Pretty good year for cinema, Josh. Yeah, sounds like it. Okay, how about Sing Street 2016, the other film we have to choose among? I remember that one. I was around for this. I remember that being yeah. on your list. It was high, number two of 2016. Wow. Okay. Then there's also 2013's Begin Again with Mark Ruffalo and Kira Knightley. Are we, is this in the poll? No, right? We're not putting this in the poll. It is actually. So at the last minute, Sam made an executive decision and I'm on board with it. When we put it out on Twitter and Facebook, it was just a death match. Either or, you had to pick between Sing Street or Once. And maybe... It was because of Mitchell Beaupre writing in with love for Begin Again, or Sam just choosing to be a bit of a completist here. He said, why not? Let's go ahead and include all three Carney films. Now, if you look at just Twitter, Sing Street came out on top ahead of once, 53% to 47%. Over on Facebook, 59% to 41% for once. We'll have to see how the percentages shake out, especially now that we are going to put Begin Again in the equation. I really can't imagine that film, which I just finally caught up with. Despite being the huge John Carney fan that I am, I just watched Begin Again for the first time maybe a year or two ago. And it's a perfectly fine film, Josh. Not getting not getting fine. your vote? No, it's not getting my vote 
over Once or Sing Street. But then again, neither film is going to get my vote because I refuse to participate in these shenanigans. I abstain. I mean, I think you can feel okay going going for Once. And I have, you know, for whatever stars are worth, I have the same star rating for both films. I'm quite a big fan of both of them. But it seems to me Once is the more singular experience in terms of the idea how it's crafted, how it was made compared to Sing Street, which is great on its own and a ton of fun. Understand the affection for it, but once is the singular picture from Carney. Okay, you're going to force me to admit that if I was forced to make a vote, I think my instinct would be to go with Sing Street, even though I'm not sure that there's a moment in any of Carney's films that hits me quite as hard as Falling Slowly from once. But I actually think it's because of what I'll call the ambition of Sing Street and the degree of difficulty in pulling off that that storyline and the original music versus the quaintness of once and the simplicity of it, even though that's what's so wondrous about it and what I adore about it. So this is why I hate this poll question, because it's making me have to choose between these two films that I do love so much. It's funny that this question came up, actually, in a way, Josh, because just a couple days ago, I was talking to one of my best friends, my best friend from high school, Jason, who I now live pretty close to, and we get to see each other a lot more and hang out. He sang in my band in college, and we played a lot of music together in high school and college. And he hasn't seen either of these John Carney films, had never heard of John Carney. And I got to I got to tell him about both of these movies and how they're available and that he really needs to see them both as quickly as he can. And I kind of nudged, I guess this is my long way around to an answer. I kind of nudged him towards Sing Street as the one. If he had to only watch one, hmm. I thought he should watch Sing Street, actually. So I guess I'm going... With that, I think you need to set up a double feature date night. I would love that. And I cannot wait to see how many votes Begin Again gets. Come on, Begin Again Hive, emerge. <laughs> Make your presence known. You can vote now and leave a comment at filmspotting.net. Poor movie's just going to get trounced. <laughs> We get into our African cinema marathon with some of the trailer for 2017's I Am Not a Witch, directed by Rungano Nioni. That was Henry B.J. Fury's Mr. Banda giving instructions to eight-year-old Shula, who's played by Maggie Malubwa, asking her to make a choice. She can be a goat or she can be a witch. We... We'll explain in a bit here. I Am Not a Witch is the fifth and final film in our marathon, which is a survey of some of the best films produced by Africa from 1950s to the 2010s. You can follow along at filmspotting.net slash marathons. We're also going to get to our marathon awards in just a bit. Radio listeners, to hear that segment, go to filmspotting.net or find us wherever you get your podcasts. Neoni was born in Zambia and emigrated with her family to Wales when she was nine. Trained as an actress in the UK, Neoni made a couple of award-winning shorts before making I Am Not a Witch her first feature. It premiered at the 2017 Cannes Film Festival, where it was a Camera Door nominee for Best First Film. A follow-up on Becoming a Guinea Fowl has been shot 
but a release date has not yet been scheduled. I'm Not a Witch follows that eight-year-old girl we mentioned earlier, Shula, who shows up in a rural village and is quickly determined to be a witch by villagers. She spends time at a camp for elderly witches where they are each tied to a spool of white ribbon. She goes on to be exploited by a government official for powers. It is not clear she has. And this is a movie, Josh, that has some very clear satirical elements to the film. It's also a film that's unsettling enough that it would be hard to say that it's working in a comic register, at least not all of the time. And we've already had a discussion about another film in this marathon that revolved around that dichotomy. As part of this marathon, it stands quite a bit apart from the other four films, films that were made in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s by men who lived through their country's independence from European colonialists. Neoni is young, born in 82. She's a woman. She's an immigrant who grew up and went to school in the UK. Her native Zambia is also over 5,000 miles to the southeast from Senegal and Mali, the settings of our previous three films. So plenty of differences, but did any of our viewing thus far help prepare you for I'm Not a Witch? Hmm. I mean, it's a good question. I think I would probably have appreciated this just as much if I had seen it back in 2017, as you suggested earlier. It could have been a golden brick contender that year. I wish I'd seen it then and could have helped spread the word even further about the movie because it's really great. Maybe Yellen is the one that, um, you know, is most similar in that it's dealing with traditional African belief systems, very different contexts here, as you pointed out, different countries, different cultures, um, but belief systems that are, for the most part, independent of any colonial influence. Yellen set, you know, not only in the past, but in an imagined past, a fantasy past in some ways. Uh, and this set amongst a region, a group of villages where witchcraft is considered to be a real and potent force in their lives. And the critique that comes, I don't know if I would say satire, um, because there's, you know, I think of satire as, as kind of lampooning or, um, you know, making fun of something. This is def there's definitely critique here. Um, but I think it's almost more direct and pointed that there are those who will use these, exploit these belief systems for their own gain. And that's what we see in the official who is in the clip that we heard, whereas he comes in and knows that there are ways he can use this girl, Shula, to keep the locals under his jurisdiction in line, to scare them in some ways to punish them in some ways, to, you know, have her when there's a theft come in and identify the thief because the people in that village will believe whatever she says, right? And then we also see scenes where he's, you know, making money on the side off of her supposed powers. So a fascinating film all for that. But the thing that I appreciated most about it has to do with that word supposed. I love how Neoni never commits to the reality or the unreality of Shula's powers. There are times where we think this is a little girl and that a moment where she has to decide between being a goat or a witch is, is evidence of this, where we feel like that this little girl is just trying to survive, right? She's given a choice. She's, she's told by the official, you're going to go in this shack overnight in the morning. Tell us, are you a witch or are you a goat? And what that means is if she's a goat, 
my impression is that then she would be abandoned or killed, right? And so her only choice for survival is to say she's a witch, to, quote, confess, right? And at this point, we're not entirely sure what is going on with her, whether she wandered Mm -hmm. into this village because of some atrocity that has happened and she's only survived, or as some of the villagers assume, she's this ethereal, supernatural being. And this movie goes back and forth the whole time so that while it is mostly a straight-faced drama, we get these little metaphysical flourishes. Um, And this is where the filmmaking gets interesting too, right? Those freeze frames I want to ask you about um, during the ritual killing of the chicken. First of all, if you saw that or if there was something going on with my DVD. Um, But there are other moments where something strange is occurring and Neoni is just opening the door that, Mm-hmm. Okay, this is a problem in such cultures that these beliefs are being exploited, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're believing in something false. And that was the fascinating tension for me throughout this movie. I definitely did notice the freeze frames like you did. Wasn't completely sure what to make of them, but I think what you're getting at, and it's the same thing that really drew me into this film, is that the movie respects the point of view of that main character of Shula. And it really has to, I think to, to give her a sense of power to imbue that character with some control or sense of control over her own life at that age. Reality is kind of what you make it. Do you have Mm. powers? Do you not have powers? Well, you can, you can choose to believe whatever you want to believe, especially when, there are adults who ostensibly should know what's going on, who ostensibly are authority figures telling you something is so. Yeah, and then yeah. the power, the power of having to undo that. That's one of the things we see that character reckon with. I mean, really kind of the tragic ending of this film is a character, is this character, Shula, so believing or choosing to believe so rigidly a certain reality about her and her powers, if you will. When that turns out not to be the case, there's really a sense that she doesn't know how to continue to go on. So I think that is that is something that makes this film special is the way it it aligns with that that point of view, the point of view of Shula. And not to get lost in the semantics of it, but I think that that sense of satire, or sometimes you'll see the word satire be attached to this film, I think it's fair in that it comes back to what you said, which is this notion of critique. And they're usually being a target of the satire, and especially when it is rooted in humor. And there are parts that maybe in the moment you're not quite sure how you should be responding to or if you should be laughing at. But the more you think about it, you can't help but but laugh at the absurdity of it, the utter absurdity of it, like when Mr. Banda so enthusiastically hears about this young witch. And at first, I love this kind of ambiguity of it too. I think I think Neoni plays with this a lot in different ways throughout the film, where it upends your expectations a little bit. When the call first comes in from an officer that there may be another witch, you're not sure if his enthusiasm is rooted in his desire to be a fair and just member of the government who is actually going to help this girl or if it's something more exploitative 
and we find out pretty quickly that it's that, yeah. right? But for a second, we're not totally sure. But then we realize, oh, okay, he cannot wait to groom and take advantage of, groom for his capitalistic purposes, groom this young witch and put her with these others. And so when he goes to confirm that she is, in fact, a witch, he brings this this witch doctor. And the the witch doctor starts dancing and Bonda doesn't really think he's he's given it enough, you know? He's not he's not performing enough. And he says something like, Do do some more. Do some more dancing yeah. like you did the last time. You know, it is this acknowledgement that this is all a big game, that there is a falseness to it, but he can be that brazen about it as well, that he knows he can get away with it. And that's a moment that that makes me laugh quite a bit when I think back on this film. I think about what we open the film on, where we have these, I believe it's the opening or one of the first images we get in this film, is this group of elderly women sitting there. We're not quite sure what exactly their circumstances are, but it feels like tourists are watching them Mm -hmm. and taking pictures of them. And a guide is talking about them. And someone says something about why they're they ask a question about why they have those threads, why they have the spools that they're tethered to. And the guy says something like, well, you know, if they weren't tethered, they just fly around and kill people. Yeah. (laughs) That's what they do. They mostly just fly around and kill people. So there, there is this, this absurdity that Neoni is absolutely tapping into and giving the movie overall this, this heightened sort of fantasy sense that goes back as well to that that image, that recurring image of the the spool and the thread well, that, that, that that's, ties these women down, yeah. literally restrains them. I mean, that's the point. It's like, it is absurd, but it's not. Like, they, they are free to walk away. These are thin, delicate, long ribbons. I mean, they're free to leave them at any moment, but there is actual believable weight to them. So mm-hmm. it's absurd and it's not. And that's what the movie is playing with. But to your point about the humor, I mean, there are two very funny scenes. The one where the whole village comes into the first official to testify against Shula. Hilarious. And the guy goes into a long story about, yeah. you know, My his encounter with off. a witch and then and then ends with, well, it was a dream. And the, the whole village is like, oh, <laughs> yeah. And then the other one where um, at this point, Shula has been brought in by Mr. Banda and she's there to judge a thief. Right. So it's this mm-hmm. courtroom proceeding in a village and the accuser, the accuser of the thief is an older man and whose cell phone, you know, a, a regular joke of the cell phone going off when it shouldn't. But it is so especially funny here in this context. So yeah, definitely humor in the movie. But I also, you know, it's hard to describe now in conversation, the effectiveness of that ribbon image. And I think it's also, you know, these spools we're talking about, if if listeners haven't watched the movie, they may be thinking of, you know, something a little bigger than a normal spool of thread. No, this is like three feet tall. Um, It's almost like the, the women who are tied to them have been miniaturized, right, compared to the size of these spools. And it's incredibly evocative. And it is also used again by Neoni to make us wonder what's real and what's not. You know, the the freeze frames during that um the the witch doctor's dance that you were talking about, I feel like those are little slivers of the supernatural slipping mm-hmm. into the movie, right? Yes, we understand that Banda is trying to, you know, goose this guy along. 
yet something else is going on beyond even Bonda's understanding. And when the movie freezes for a second like that, um, it's almost like there's a rip in space and time. Um, and the spools work similarly. How about the early moment where Shula has been tied, a ribbon has been tied to her back and she tries to run away. And I love your point about how she comes to believe, and maybe this is related about how she as a kid would comes to believe what the adults tell her. I think that's, that's really perceptive. But in this moment, she tries to run away and the spool yanks her back, back. right? Mm -hmm. And in a way that, you know, just a ribbon that thin tied to a kid running that fast would not. And so there's another sliver of the supernatural. What like how did how did that happen? And that's a case where it's even independent of Shula's own, you know, belief in a way. So so yeah, I and this is just, you know, I think this marathon has left us with a lot of indelible images, like instant images. And these spools are definitely one for me. Yeah, I love your reading of that, which is a little bit different than mine, but it makes complete sense that these spools are something that could potentially be easily broken or they could untether themselves from if they wanted to. And I think that's another trick of the movie is that Neoni is sort of having it both ways where, again, it's about the power of belief mm-hmm. and how, how, how rigid you might be about succumbing to certain customs or traditions. And is it a case where they they really could get away if they wanted to, but maybe they really don't want to, or they believe something negative will happen to them, or they believe it's stronger than it really is. And we as viewers are supposed to see it that way. Or do we buy into, do we buy into that? No, maybe the, maybe those spools are somehow stronger than we think. And maybe those, those bands really are tougher. I I kind of felt that way about it. Now that I think about it more from your point of view, it might be right that, that it's, it's the other way or it doesn't matter. It, it it only matters that they believe right. they can't go Yes. Anywhere. Yeah, I think that's and, true. And what what's really key to me is that this image of literal restraint, the thing that confines them, is I think every time we see it, anytime we we actually see one of the threads, not not just the spool on their back, but we really see an image of the thread. There is so much breeze. Mm-hmm. There is so much wind. Yeah. It is it is always free flowing. Emphasis on free, right? And then that's juxtaposed with the confinement of Shula and these women. So again, it's one of those little kind of absurdities and contradictions that that Neoni is playing with here. And I'll give you another one where it just sort of for a second upends your expectations or you have to think about what we're about to watch. When Mr. Bonda goes on a TV show mm. and he's being asked by a pseudo journalist. He's being asked about this, witch, and he's asking questions that would seem to suggest that this approach to this young girl, the notion of witches being among us and how they have to be treated is all perfectly suitable to him. And he is playing the game the same way this guy is. And then after a few questions and a few answers, including where Mr. Bond is trying to hawk eggs that he says are supernatural that come from Shula, they've been, I guess, the opposite of blessed. They've been cursed or something by the witch. He all of a sudden starts getting a line of questions from the journalist that put this in a completely different light and actually call out his exploitation. And then I think for the first time, as I remember it, 
we get a judgmental reaction shot from the audience. Sure. Turns out, you know, this isn't just being shot with the two of them. There's an audience there, and they all seem to be looking at him with this sense of judgment, which then does call into question everything that he's been doing. It changes the course of the film, at least in terms of him and that relationship from then on out. But in the moment, you're thinking, oh, is this how all-encompassing this is? Is this how omnipresent this sense of oppression is that even the journalist, the TV station, the audience, that they're all complicit in it? And we see that there is some larger societal factors at work that show that many people are complicit and wanting to maintain this status quo. But in this particular case, it turns out that no, they actually, they actually aren't. They're questioning his treatment of her. Yeah, they are. And I, I got to say that was the only segment that I could have done without in the film, because to me, in all the ways you just described, it makes literal the questions and accusations that had bouncing around in my head, you know, and it almost, it almost felt like, um, redundant, in a way, even though it does kind of start to put the screws on Mr. Banda, which happens a little later as well. So it does serve that purpose. But but yeah, that was a segment that didn't entirely work for me. I want to not to continue harping on the ribbons, but you said something that I just I want to ask what your reading was, because I, I feel like, you know, most listeners are are listening to this review after they've watched the film. So I think it's fair to ask this. But the ending you know, my understanding was the belief, not only for Shula, but any of the witches, is if you cut your ribbon, you will turn into a goat. And then what happens is, you know, the villagers will will kill you. Um, I think something to, along those lines is said at some point to her as a threat, right? And so in the end, I'm going to spoil this if you do want to watch this unspoiled, if you're planning to and are just listening to us beforehand, um, maybe jump ahead a little bit. But in the end, I was not entirely clear what happened. What I believe happened is Shula chooses, because she does not want to live this way anymore, to cut her ribbon. And again, as happens so much in this film, Neoni does not show us the direct result. Like back to the chicken, the ritual killing of the chicken. If the chicken goes outside of the circle, it reveals she's what I forget what it what it is, but she, it reveals she either is or is not a witch. If it stays in the circle, it's the opposite, right? Mm. Neoni doesn't show us what happens to the chicken. <laughs> it's no. it's one of many instances where we think yes. we're going to get information and it's held back. Yes. So similarly, in this ending, after Shula cuts the ribbon, all we see is a body under a shroud. Do you even know that she cut the ribbon, Josh? It was very. It's see that. So here's a confession. Sure it's very. Did. It was a very dark scene, and I was watching this during the day. And the picture was not as Chris, I rewound it even mm -hmm. and watched again. And that is a good question. Maybe she didn't cut the ribbon. I think I assumed she did because of what we see next, which is these boys who have been kind of like Mr. Bonda's assistants carrying this body, small body under a shroud, yeah. leaving it in a field. And so I'm not, I'm wondering again, is this an instance of perhaps confirmation of the supernatural? Did she turn into a goat? And this is what they do with the goat. Although, why mm. would they wrap it up in a shroud? I, yeah, I, this is I'm I'm at yes. a loss. Interesting question. If you no, feel a little, question. if you have a stronger sense, please tell me because I'm a bit at a loss, and I don't no, mind that I'm, being at a loss. Neither, to be clear, but I think it's worth talking out. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm not entirely sure 
how we're supposed to read the final image of the film. I read it as incredibly powerful. I read the image of those spools and those threads now not being attached. Oh, that's incredible. Yeah, that's an incredible shot. And I, I don't think we're supposed to read it any other way than what it, what it looks like, which is liberation. Mm -hmm. Now that said, do I literally believe, or am I supposed to literally believe that all of the women who have previously been tethered and been identified as witches now all of a sudden at the end have released themselves and gone away. I I don't know that I'm literally supposed to believe that it could be the filmmaker trying to, trying to give me that powerful image and have it do some lifting of its own separate from any literal truth. That's, that's at least the, the way that I experienced it, but I'll go back real quick. I'll muddy things even more. Josh. Well, real, real quick, and, the final shot yeah. you're talking about, I registered as well as completely symbolic and I was yeah, okay with that's it. Right. That symbolic. was, that was for me separate from the events of the film. It was more Shula's fate. I felt was purposefully left in the air and I'm just trying to determine what I should be choosing between. Yeah. Well, well, how about the fact that also so much of the final moments of this film are about whether or not she is a witch can conjure rain and and upon what happens to her yes it pours yes. right so again that's that's where the filmmaker is leaving certain ambiguous symbolic slash literal doors open for interpretation but i'll muddy things a little bit and go back to how i interpreted the goat witch scene and the way i interpreted what mr bonda posed to her the way i read it was He says to her, okay, we've brought you here. We believe you're a witch. If you now go in this little shed and you leave, you will become a goat. But if you stay, you're a witch. And so it's sort of this false sense of a choice in the matter when really she, of course, doesn't have a choice. The point is to have her stay in the shed so that it proves that she's a witch. And he's just told her that if she leaves, she's going to turn into a goat. Mm-hmm. She doesn't want to be a goat. Yeah. So of course she stays, she stays in the shed and she thus, you know, confirms that she is a witch. And that's, that's why later at the end, when she says, she says, I wish I had just been a goat. Yeah. It, it, it makes you realize that in that moment, when she was given that false choice, she thought to herself, well, I have to stay here. I have to stay here because what would be worse than being a goat? And that's that's how he gets her, right? Yeah. No, I, I think I read that quite similarly. I, I think the question I'm asking is what's under the shroud? Now, yeah, I understand. Is it, is it possible, you know, there's another, in the context of you going back to that scene, like it's possible this poor little girl killed herself, right? Um, yeah, be, that's be, that's how I read. Okay, so that's how I read. It. Okay, Even though, yeah. Again, we have very little to go off of. Purposefully, we do not see it. We see her purposefully. We see her grab the the thread, and then we're not entirely sure what she does next. The next time we see her, we actually we don't see her. We only see her in the shroud. The next time we see Shula, so it's not clear what happens in that moment. But clearly, she makes she makes some kind of choice mm-hmm. or. The question you're really getting at is, does she also then, as part of that choice, choose to die? That's something she wanted, or is that an outcome of the choice? 
Yeah, I mean, it's a man. This this movie just got really dark because it wasn't until yeah. our conversation I even entertained that as an option. For me, I was wondering if, you know, cutting the ribbon, she did against the supernatural slipped in. She did turn into a goat, hmm. and then somehow was killed. That that's the step I couldn't quite follow. But I think, you know, suicide is probably a more likely option. For whatever it's worth, the shape of the shroud tends to resemble yeah. her, bo- her body. That. That'd be the only counter to yeah. your point. Yeah, and I did think about that as well. Whether she transforms or not, I don't know. Yeah. It looks like Shula yeah. at the end. And I think the bottom line is all of this, I think all of this back and forth, for me at least, is um, to the film's credit. I think yeah. it's intentional and making up us wrestle with some of the questions and you know as we just arrived at the serious implications of the exploitation of these sorts of beliefs the costs that that can come with that which brings us back to the film's critique yeah and just to underline what you said to go back to something we've touched on here whether or not she really does turn into a goat or we're supposed to believe she does there is enough of a sense in the moment that when she is being dropped off and she's under that shroud for a second, we believe that it could be possible. Yes. And, and the fact that the fact that we as viewers are constantly in that state yes. of, of being uneasy and being unsettled and not even sure whether or not we're in a natural world or a supernatural world. That That's something the filmmaker is deliberately playing with throughout. Yeah, incredibly effective and, you know, speaks to speaks to really impressive filmmaking talent. This really this is one that, you know, I wish we had found time for and could have given that golden brick nod to. I Am Not a Witch concludes our African Cinema Marathon. That film is available VOD on most platforms. If you've seen it, we'd love to hear your thoughts. Feedback at filmspotting.net. More about this marathon is at filmspotting.net slash marathons. We do always wrap up these marathons with some awards. We look at our favorite performances, scenes, and do name a best picture. Always fun to be able to look back on these marathons and look back on these awards and refamiliarize ourselves with the standout moments and the standout actors and actresses. We have settled on a name, didn't get any suggestions for this one other than the one from our producer, Sam, and I think it's a really good one. He suggested we call it the Sambans in honor of Usman Samban, the Senegalese director of Black Girl, the second film we watched in this marathon. It was the first feature released by a director from so-called sub-Saharan Africa. He's been called the father of African cinema, and 2023 is the centennial of Samben's birth. So we're going to honor him by calling these awards the Samben's. We have five categories, best supporting performance, best lead performance. We have best scene. And then we also have our unique marathon category, which is one I'll let you explain, Josh, when we get there. It was a very good idea by you. Finally, we have our best picture. So the Samben for best supporting performance. Here are the nominees I came up with. You tell me if you think I'm I'm overlooking anyone or miscategorizing these. From our first film, Cairo Station. Hind Rustam as Hanuma, or Farid Shaki as Abu Sira. Black Girl, we have Anne-Marie Jelinek as Madame, or Robert Fontaine as Monsieur. From Tukibuki, I don't have anyone unless you consider either Miriam Yang as Anta 
or Magaye Niang as Mori really are two main characters, if you consider yeah, one of I them think so. supporting. I, I had them yeah. both in lead. From Yelen, Awa Sangara as Atu, and Niamanto Sonogo as Soma, I think would be contenders. And then finally, from I Am Not a Witch, you have Henry B.J. Fury as Mr. Banda. You also, I think, could throw in his wife, Nancy Marillo, who plays Charity, a former witch who seems to have it all figured out, has utterly redeemed herself. Played her witch cards the best she could. Yeah, redeemed herself in the eyes of society until that turns out not to be the case at all. So of those supporting performers, is there one that emerges victorious for you? I did think about uh, Henry B.J. Fury from I Am Not a Witch because I liked his balance of to the to the point of this having, you know, some element of comedy in it. I think he has a comic presence while also showing us this is a guy who's capable of real menace. And we're never quite sure what kind of menace that could be just because of the authority he holds. So Fury mm-hmm. is good there. But I did end up going with Hind Rostam from Cairo Station. She played Hanuma. This is the vivacious, flirtatious drink seller who's basically trying to peddle her way out of a life that's tied to this job at the train station. There's this moment where another character describes Hanuma as having nine lives like a cat. And I just loved that because as I was watching her, I had similar thoughts, how she's fearless in a way, given, especially given her station in life. This is a very dangerous place and scenario for her. But Hanuma is not going to be held back by that. She's very wily. She's going to play her cards the best she can. And, um, you know, she's caught, really Hanuma is caught between the traditional and the modern in this film. And so there are ways where she models the modern woman. She's very sexual. She's independent. She's entrepreneurial. um, But she's also willing to embrace marriage uh, to a porter to get her out of her situation. So I think Rostam captures, for one thing, she's just, you know, an incredible screen presence. Just, yeah, you know, very dynamic, very dynamic. And I think she, in the performance itself, though, captures both the free spirit and the sad spirit that's still tethered to the to restrictive tradition. Yeah, I like your word fearless. She got my Samben award as well. The word I had in mind was her, her defiance. She's yeah. in this overwhelmingly patriarchal society. She is, to an extent, living continually under the thumb of men, her lover, her boss, the man that wants to be her lover. They're all the policemen chasing her. Yeah, the policemen, right? They're all always trying to contain her. And however limited her options may actually be, there's always a sense that she's in control. She's in control of her choices, making her own decisions. And I think that performance is a big, big part of that. Lead performance. We have from Cairo Station, the director, Youssef Chaheen is Kanawi. We have Mbisane Therese Diop as Duana from Black Girl. Tukibuki, the aforementioned Miriam Nyang and Magaye Nyang in Yelen. Isiaka Kane as Nian Koro. And from I Am Not a Witch, Young Shula, played by Maggie Mulabwa. This one was tough, at least it was for me. Between two very similar, perhaps, performances, where did you go? Oh, maybe we have the same two we considered. The nominee I I considered, and again, possibly recency bias, but it is Maggie Malubwa from I Am Not a Witch. You know, this child performances are always tricky, and this one does come from a novice actor. 
in some sense, you could say she's not asked to do much. You know, um, Chula is very stoic as she's trying to make sense of her situation, but she also has to have a certain mystery uh, in ways that we described in our review. And I think Maluba does have that. I had to go, though, with investing Therese Jupp from Black Girl with Mm -hmm. my choice for this award. It is another stoic turn from another novice, but far trickier, I think. On the one hand... It feels, and I forget if this came up in our review or not, but like a Brassanian performance, you know, Robert Brisson would encourage his his actors to display no emotion, to be unadorned. Um, and that allows us to project our own assumptions on Jupp's character, Juana, who is this young Senegalese woman who's immigrated to France to be a housekeeper and a, a nanny for a wealthy couple. But I do think that Jupp, and especially as the film goes on, she allows cracks to break through that numbness uh, just enough so that it's not entirely Bersonian. Mm-hmm. Um, we be, we do begin to sense Joanna's increasing desperation, and that comes from the performance. I did want to note, though, just looking more into this uh, today, I should have done this when we were reviewing Black Girl, but you know, we do hear from Juana in the film's extensive use of voiceover, but that's not Jop, apparently. I found this right. piece at uh, Public Books. It's by Doyle Calhoun, and he wrote this. The Juana we hear on screen is voiced by the Haitian singer Toto Besant. The cinematic character of Juana is a silent body onto which another woman's voice is grafted. Hmm. So I don't think that takes away from Jop's performance at all. I just, I did want to mention that and, and we'll link to that piece in the show notes. But yeah, for my award, I went with Jop from Black Girl. Yeah, those are exactly the two performers I had competing here. Very similar in the sense that they're both observers, largely, and not overly performative in terms of their actions and behavior on screen. I think desperation is a great word for what we start to see seep through with that character. I was thinking of it just in terms of the the exhaustion, the toll that this daily oppression is taking on her, especially when she came to France with this sense that she was finally going to get to be the the person, the woman, the individual that she has longed to be. And she's found it to be even more oppressive than being in her own country, perhaps even being under the rule of these Europeans. And what really emerges for me, I'll be honest, I hadn't really thought about whether or not that was her voice, but I didn't think it was. And it's definitely not part of why I love the performance. I'm thinking of it purely as a physical performance and those subtle, Mm. physical, but overt acts of here again, I'll say defiance in the face of this oppression, the dress, putting on the heels. Part of this is the direction and the costume design, but the way she wears those things and walks in those things and and expresses herself that way is one of the defining parts of this marathon for me. Yeah, I like that. In a way, realizing that speaks to the performance even more, right, that that she's giving. Mm-hmm. Let's go to scene or moment. Let's do scene or moment next. And, you know, speaking of Black Girl, I definitely considered one of my nominees is the ending of that film. We spent a lot of time talking about it. I could be convinced that it should win this award easily. Um, I also considered the opening, the opposite. You referenced it of I Am Not a Witch. Before we meet that group of women who are tied to those ribbons and we don't know what's going on at all. That is a very arresting shot. 
we get the arrival into the village from inside the tourist bus. And just the fact that the camera, until we get the shot you talked about, the camera stays in the bus, doesn't get out, is such a crucial choice, I think, um, for the beginning of that film. I also considered the climactic father and son confrontation in Yellin something that is, you know, just out of this world. I, I never expected I would see something like that when I began this marathon. So I did like that quite a bit. But my winner is another scene we spent a lot of time on. It comes from Tuki Buki and it's the parade. This yeah, the is fantasy. Yeah, this is where um Anta and Mori, the main characters, they've stolen clothes from this wealthy acquaintance. They've convinced his driver to take them to the capital of Dakar. And we get this series of images that gradually becomes more and more disconnected in time and place. We have Maury standing naked in the back of this convertible, making these grand pronouncements like he's a king. We see children running alongside rural roads as if they're praising him. Then we see shots of crowds gathered for this big parade. And we're we're confused, like, what is going on here? And then these images merge where we see the two of them fancily dressed in the back of this convertible and they're processing through this grand parade, waving to adoring crowds. And I just love where we're left to wonder, is this their imagination? Is this the culmination of their con? Is it something else? And it just speaks to, you know, for me, this is where where the director, Jabril Diop Mambetti's humor, avant-garde editing we see in this movie, and then the social critique, they all really come together. So for me, it's that parade from Tuki Buki. We had a couple in common in terms of my finalists, definitely the scene that you just praised from Tuki Buki, the scene from the end of Yelin, the showdown between father and son, two top contenders for me. I also could point to I am not a witch and you had the beginning, I'll go to the end and the rain, the rain mm. with the women dressed in dressed in red, really memorable. But for me, it's a sequence from the first film in the marathon, one I spent quite a lot of time talking about, and it's the one where Kanawi, our character who is in love with Hanuma, finally breaks as he stands outside the door and hears the two lovers first engage in some acts of violence and then engage in sex. And the way Shaheen intercuts between what's really happening And the fractured psyche, the unraveling of the Kanawi character, but also with the tension of of the train going by and the sound, the repetitive sound of the, the train on the tracks. Formally, it's a very complex sequence that allows you inside the mind of that disturbed character and allows you to understand quote unquote, understand why he breaks and ultimately does the thing he does for a film that otherwise is formed around a lot of neorealist techniques and capturing life as it unfolds. And sometimes with non-professional actors, that that sequence is really sophisticated and is the standout for me. Yeah. Yeah. It's a strong one. So that brings us to our final category or our penultimate category, the one before Best Picture. We always try to come up with something that's unique about the marathon, but some kind of through line. And 
you can dive into maybe some of the details a little bit, but let me see if I if I got them right. Let me see if we're on the same page. Your notion, Josh, was to do a category based on the most effective, most profound, however you want to approach it, symbolic artifact. It was inspired by the mask. The mask we see a recurring piece in Black Girl, but there are artifacts throughout all of these films, potentially. I think if you go back to Cairo Station, I wonder if you came up with the one, Josh, maybe you'd point to the trunk, the trousseau, mm. with the the bride's clothes. I don't know if it's quite as symbolic as what we see with the mask and black girl, but plays a key part in the film. In Tukibuki, I think it's that motorcycle with the bullhorn skull. You can't overlook the bullhorn skull. That may even be the more important artifact there. In Yelen, it's the, I think, the token, Niancaro's token, which is that Kor's wing. That's what it's referred to. That's part of that showdown at the end against his father. And then I wonder if we're on the same page with I'm not a witch. I mean, is it just the spool, the symbolic, the symbolic power of that spool and the thread or the ribbon that is confining those women. Yeah, we mostly are. So so I think this will work well. It is always hard when we do these marathons that aren't tied to a single filmmaker, right? It's easier to think of a quality that stands out among a single filmmaker's body of work. But when you're looking um, across countries, even in this case, it can be a bit more difficult. Then we have to be careful here, too. Like there's there's not a way to sum up the continent of Africa in one award. But I did think about the time we spent more so than in other movies, talking about particular artifacts and how they were used in these films and what they meant. Cairo Station was probably the trickiest. I think the trunk works. Uh, I, for some reason, I thought of the pinups that Zanawid has in his shack of, you know, the women that he's gathered mm-hmm. from magazines. And what I liked is I realized when I was thinking about the various artifacts I was considering that they were, they often represented either modernity or tradition. And so the pinups are clearly modernity, right? Um, these are one of the modern things that the, that is coming through the train station that the more traditionalists there would not approve of. Uh, Tukibuki, obviously, the, the horns on the motorcycle, that one's perfect because it's a combination of modernity and tradition, right? The horns, tradition, the motorcycle, modernity. For Yalin, um, I picked a different object, but is the same, you know, serves the same sort of purpose, this magical, powerful artifact. For me, it was the magic pole that the father uses mm-hmm. to track down the son. Um, and then, yeah. I mean, how could you not go with the ribbons tied to the spool in in I Am Not a Witch? I did try today to to track down if this is something, these ribbons particularly, that are based in some sort of fact. I couldn't find anything about uh, Zambia specifically, but what popped up was a lot of stuff about ribbons and strings being believed to constrain witches across cultures outside of mm. Africa. So that was interesting. But you said it. It's the inspiration for this category. It's what we spent most of our time talking about in our review of Black Girl was that mask. It's one of the first images we see, this carved traditional mask that the French couple has hanging on the wall of their apartment. Its significance grows over the course of the film. And key for me is how it holds multiple meanings and then is just crucial to that powerhouse ending. So for me, it was the mask. Yeah. And you just said it. For me, it's the mask as well. And- 
the key reason why might be the potency of the ending of the film and how we get the closest thing to a scene from a horror movie in Black Girl is this mask. It's it's a character, a young boy wearing the mask, but it's this mask literally following Monsieur around as he tries to buy off his guilt. Yeah, haunting him. I don't yeah, I don't think we need to I don't think we need to unpack that. I think the image <laughs> and even just describing the image really says absolutely everything and that's why that's my pick as well. So, we are at best picture. We know our five options here, Josh. I wonder if we're going to end up in the same place on this one as well. For me, it's Black Girl. Black Girl yeah. is the film. Tough choosing. I might even be choosing against I Am Not a Witch is my second favorite from the marathon. But the more I tried to put this experience of watching these films and talking about them in perspective, I kept coming back to the the black and white. I kept coming back to Diop's face and those acts of defiance that we talked about. I kept coming back to the mask and the power of that image. And I also was thinking about it in relation to a film we discussed last year, I think may have even been a Golden Brick nominee. We talked about Nanny, the Gatu mm-hmm. Yusu film. And I don't remember if we touched on this in our review or not, so I'm going to bring it up here. That film starring Anna Diop about a young woman who comes from Africa to work for a family in New York City. And that's a film that is overtly working in the realm of horror. And you wondered about that film, a film we both liked. You wondered what that film might be like if it stripped away that horror element. Well, I think Black Girl is kind of it. <laughs> is it, <laughs> yeah. right? And and it's fascinating for me to think about those two films as a potential double feature. And I think one of the questions I apply whenever I'm looking back on a marathon and we're doing these awards is if I really had to, for some reason, tell someone who only had time to watch one of these films, what's the one film they would watch? I think it would be Black Girl for me. Yeah, that's a good way to think about it. I'm I'm definitely with you. And, you know, just to say this wasn't easy either. I think all of these films are excellent, incredibly engrossing experiences. I'm so glad we did this. My guess is it's going to be one of the marathons that the least number of people followed along. And that's too bad because they really missed out. This was a huge hole in my cinema experience and filling it has been more rewarding than I would have guessed. So this was not easy. I did find them sitting down and trying to make a choice, falling into tears and maybe Cairo station was in the bottom tier, but I think maybe that's because it was the most familiar. It did work in registers that I was just, I recognized, right? We talked about neorealism and film noir and that. And so that made it fun. Um, but it stood apart from the rest of the films in, in that way. So in my estimation, I would say I Am Not a Witch, Yellen, and Tukibuki were all a little bit a step above it, but in their own tier, which left Black Girl just on its own level. I mean, all of these movies have their degrees of invention. So I don't I don't want to, you know, act like Black Girl's the only one who has this, but it's slippery use of time, those flashbacks. And its legacy, which you were touching on. I mean, just being able to see its influence on a film like Nanny, which, as you said, we watched before we had seen Black Girl. Or Saint-Omer, which made my top 10 last year. You know, just seeing its influence on something like that put it on the top, at the top for me. And yeah, 
we've already spent time on it, but that mask, that's what I'll, when I think back on this marathon, that's what I'll, that's the image that'll pop in my mind is that mask. So black girl, best picture for me. All of our picks and our reviews available at filmspotting.net. Just click on marathons. If you would like to help choose future marathons, please consider joining the Film Spotting Advisory Board. We have quarterly meetings where we get together with that group and they get to weigh in. The next one will come in November and that will be a 2024 marathon planning meeting. Josh, we'll have to figure out whether or not we're going to dust off some of the categories that didn't quite make the cut when we were voting last November with this group. We picked the Sight and Sound Marathon. We picked the African Cinema Marathon. Worth noting, even though we did note it at the time, I'll say it again, both Tukibuki and Black Girl could have also been part of the Sight and Sound Top 100 Marathon. They made that greatest films of all time list, and we saved them for this African Cinema Marathon. I don't really have a clear sense of what our next marathon is going to be or even what the top contenders are. And even though we have some that we voted on and others we've considered, we've had a list going since the show began, certain titles, certain themes or geographical regions or filmmakers or performers we haven't gotten to yet. We're always open to new ideas. Maybe there's something obvious we're overlooking. We'd love to hear your suggestions. That's feedback at filmspotting.net. And of course, the Film Spotting family is at filmspottingfamily.com. That's our show, Josh. If you want to connect with us on social media, we are on Facebook, Twitter, Letterboxd. And are we are we still threading, Adam? I, I haven't seen you, you seem to threading, be threading much. I'm, I'm not doing much of anything on social these days. <laughs> okay. Well, if you want to watch Adam do not much of anything, he's at Film Spotting. I'm a little busier struggling out there folks come talk to me it's kind of dead but i am at larson on film the current film spotting poll has us looking ahead a couple of weeks to one of adam's most anticipated films of the year john carney's flora and son we're asking you what's your favorite carney once sing street what what's the other one we threw in that no one can remember <laughs> begin again begin Josh, again watch it you have to watch it before you can actually vote in this poll oh okay yeah that'll happen for show t-shirts or other merch go to filmspotting.net slash shop film spotting is listener supported you can join the film spotting family over at filmspottingfamily.com for as little as five bucks a month you can listen to the show early and ad free you'll also get a weekly newsletter and you can choose between monthly bonus shows or access to the entire Film Spotting archive. Or if you want both, if you want all of that, yeah. you can get that too. You can. You mentioned this in your setup. Dazed and Confused has appeared on, I think, 13 top five <laughs> going back to 2005. I mean, it did just get put in the Pantheon, I don't know, a few years back when we did our top five classic rock scenes. Oh, okay, Ivy. okay. So, you know, we had some top fives before that. Got it. But yeah, it's been talked about quite a bit. We put it in the Pantheon during that top five, and it sounds like we see no reason to take it out of the Pantheon. Streaming new this weekend, you can see El Conde, the film about Augusto Pinochet as a vampire from director Pablo Lorraine. A Million Miles Away stars Michael Pena as Jose Hernandez, a former migrant farm worker who realizes his dream to travel to space. It's based on a true story. It's on Amazon Prime. Nothing about this film or the description screams to me that I need to make time for it, Josh, except for the fact that there's two words in there, and those words are Michael Pena, who's just 
Such a great actor. Understandable. In limited release, we have Scrapper. Cannot vouch for this letterbox take. I don't even know who it's from, but Sam quoted it here. If After Sun and the Florida Project had a cute little baby. Mm, I don't like that at all. You don't? No. 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 Besmirching. <laughs> besmirching two films and possibly two. three. Two amazing films. It's the feature debut from UK director Charlotte Regan. May have to check that one out. And in wide release, you can see Kenneth Branagh as a haunting in Venice. Moving on next week here on Film Spotting, it is top five music doc time, and it is a blind cow review. I've seen it. I love it. Josh has never seen it. And we'll find out whether or not he's going to have the temerity to sit there in front of me and besmirch the band. <laughs> On film spotting, we're going to talk about the last waltz. I don't know. I mean, you got Scorsese there, so I think you're probably going yeah. to be safe. Film spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show would not go. Our production assistants are Betty Lavendero and Veronica Phillips. Special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. For film spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.